and you assume that they've got this thing all figured out and, and they're speaking down to you. I'm like, I wish I could sit like a little bit lower. I know I can sit in the install on the floor, but then that just makes it awkward. So um, this is one of those where, man, I am, I do not have this one figured out. I'm just telling you, I do not have this one figured out. And I'm looking around the room and I'm like, they have that one figured out, it seems. And then if I were to sit down with them on, and talk about contentment, they'd be like, oh, no, I'm so incredibly discontent. You have no idea. I just, I'm, I'm working through it. But that's what, that's where we are in 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And I've got this particular passage next week. Jared is going to be preaching over the, the next passage. And then we're going to start to close it up. And by the end of September, we will have 1 Timothy finished. And so... Where we are, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, says this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So that's our passage today. And if we're not careful, we think it's all about money. It's really not. It's all about, look at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Like That is the overarching theme of this passage that we're going to be looking at. Money here is just an example. We need to understand what it's saying about money and riches and things like that. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That's what we're going to focus on the most um, to kind of center all of this message. Y'all please pray with me. Lord, I Lord, I know what I bring to the table right now in this. I know what I bring in, in knowledge and wisdom and, and skill and all of the lack of all of those things. Lord, what I pray is that Ricky doesn't lay conviction out and, and heap coals, Lord, but that your spirit works within us because words are forgotten speeches just fade into history Lord people come and go but Lord your word remains and endures forever Lord I want your word to work in us on this because it's in losing sight of this that we have lost so much joy and ushered in so much worry and so much distraction into our lives Lord, we're good with saying, quote, good with saying that we understand the godliness aspect. It's the contentment, Lord, that we really, honestly, truly wrestle with. Lord, I am completely inadequate to communicate this well. And so any good that comes out of this, I know fully and wholly and truly that it is you. And Lord, for the good of your people, so that we can know what you desire of us and so that we can walk hard after you Lord work in our hearts in this and, and communicate and, and speak and move in ways that that doesn't really make sense to us we know you're here your your word says that you are everywhere Lord but we also know that we forget that you're here and so would you make us so keenly aware of your presence in this time Lord that we cannot deny it that we know that we are your people that you are with us but Lord would you also put a hedge of protection around us because we know that as your word goes out and as your people gather, then Satan is ready to attack as well. And it says so very clearly in Scripture that the word is sown on different types of soil. And one of those types of soil 
the word goes out, the seed falls, and it says that, that all the cares and the worries of the world come up and choke the word out so that it cannot take root. Lord, may that not be the case with what we do here today. Lord, I'm just simply saying, be with us, be with me, Lord, so that we can proclaim your glory and live as lights in this world. Lord, we love you and praise in our son's holy name. Amen. Amen. All right, so here we go. This passage breaks down into to like five different things. All of them, by the way, are kind of aphorisms, which are like proverbs in and of themselves. Like you could take each one of these verses and they could stand on their own, but then whenever you also pull them together, then they have greater strength. Sometimes one sentence has to flow to the next for it to all make sense. But you could pull out verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. You could do that one and you can like, Put that one on a coffee mug, and it can stand alone, and, and it simply is what it is. You can take um, verse 8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we would be content. You can live in that one. It can stand on its own, but it's whenever you pull them all together, then they do take on a greater weight. But I kind of broke them down this way, and it's how we're going to move. There's a great truth here that we're going to look at first. And it's where we're going to dwell the most. There's a great reminder. There's a great challenge. There's a great warning, and then there's a great caution. And so we're going to kind of walk through those. And so the great truth is simply this. Here's what you and I need to know. The great truth is verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a great truth that you and I need. Godliness refers to the state of, of the believer who loves the Lord, striving to follow hard after him. Um, so godliness really refers to the, ones who, the one who knows the Lord and grows in the Lord. Like that's what he's striving for. We would say we're good on that. We just sang songs about that. Whatever my God ordains is right, right? In Christ alone is what we're going to sing later. We're, we're good, quote, with that. But if we're going to do a math equation, then godliness is the first variable to be a growing believer, right? And then look at the next part, contentment. Like the straight-up definition of contentment is the state of being happy and satisfied. And so the second variable is contentment, and it says this. You're going to do it as a math equation. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. And we're going to keep coming back to that equation over and over and over again here at the beginning. Don't miss the width. Don't miss the width. That small preposition with godliness with contentment is great gain. We already know, let's say this, we already know that we are not perfect people and we don't even try to profess to be. We know who we are. We know that we have been called, though, um, by God to be his sons and daughters because we've been forgiven. We know that. We know that we are co-heirs with Christ, covered by the blood of Christ once and for all time, forgiven, justified. Our godliness is what we tend to focus on. But it has to be godliness with contentment for great gain. And to clarify, gain here. It's not financial gain. It's, it's a different kind of gain. It's a spiritual gain. And we're going to talk about that here in a moment. But what we're always going to keep coming back to here is, like, let's just, are you content? Always a rhetorical question. Just, are you content? You got the godliness. He died for you. The godliness is absolutely yours. But are you content with whatever it is that God does with your life and where he has you right now? Are you content? So the equation is godliness plus contentment equals great gain. It is the great truth that I need. It is, a, it is a very sobering truth that I have to always keep coming back to. It, uh, 
not we're not talking financial gain. I told you we're talking about um, spiritual gain. And so I know, though, like I have to put these things out to the side. When the bills are coming in and debt is building, then finances do provide peace. I live in the real world, too. My wife reminds me all the time, this is what our bank account looks like. You need to know that. And I'm like, okay. I don't know what to always do with that, by the way. Like, I'm just, I'm not financially motivated. Um, and I'm not, like, I just, I do have a level of contentment whenever it comes to finances. But I also know this, whenever the debt is there, whenever the bills are coming in, then there's that moment where it's not like, oh, we've got money in the bank. It's, I know we got money in the bank. Like, and everything's going to be fine. Like, but inside, like, there is this discontentment that starts right. There's this worry that starts to come up. But finances come, finances go. We know that. Like, we know that that financial gain that we keep striving for, we can put it in the bank, and at some point, it's ultimately gone. So this isn't about financial gain. Whenever he says it's for much gain or it is great gain, he's talking about a spiritual gain that affects everything of all that we are. Finances will give you only a temporary peace in the temporary moment that we have right before us. And that temporary might be for the day, it might be for the years, it might be for retirement, but that's still only temporary. It's limited in its scope. Finances are finite. They're going to go away. There is a limited gain in that. But whenever he says that there is great gain in godliness and contentment, that gain there is a spiritual that meets all of your spiritual, your emotional, your psychological, and your physical. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's kind of the construct we're going to keep coming back to. What it all really means is that whenever we have that great gain, that there is peace and joy. Whenever you have godliness and whenever you have contentment, that great gain is a permeating peace and joy. And find somebody who does not have joy and does not have peace and you will find discontentment. Or you find someone who has discontentment and you will find a lack of peace and joy. I want to come back real quick. Even though I was about to talk about money, I just want to clarify. It's really more about the matters of the heart. Are you content? Finances, job, positions, health, possessions. Like, are you content or are we not? And you need to know whenever I say you, like, God is doing the you to me also. I will try to be cognizant of saying we, but I need you to understand, like, this is something that I really struggle with. And every time that we're putting a sermon together, be it Jared or Andy or I, God is also working with us all week long. And so we are not sitting here as people who are professing to have it figured out. We're just trying to make plain what Scripture tells us for all of our growth. But are you content? That's what it keeps coming back to. If godliness with contentment is great gain, then, then what we really need is to just be reminded of what we already know. It all comes down to perspective. We just lose our perspective. And so I just want to take you to God's word for that perspective. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. So you're going to be going to your right. You're going to go to 2 Peter. And just so you know, we're going to live the most of the sermon like in the, the bulk of this, this great truth, and then everything will extend out of it. But 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says this. I'm in the ESV. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So what does that tell us? Look at it. Simple. His divine power has granted to us all things. Things that pertain to life and godliness. You know where we tend to camp? 
Oh, he provided Christ. Like, he provided everything for my life and godliness in Christ. And we focus on, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't focus on Christ. I'm saying that we are way under esteeming Christ. If we're only seeing Christ in the scope of eternity and not in how he meets our needs absolutely right now, then we are not seeing the fullness of Christ. He gave us all things for life now and godliness. He said, I have come that you may have life. That's what he came for. So you could have life, eternal life, yes, but life right now. Because he removes all the distractions and all the discouragements, everything. His divine power, he gave us everything we need for life and God, godliness. God grants us what we need, y'all. And we know it, but let's get real, we really don't know it. We know it on a level, and then we begin to doubt it. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. I want to be like Paul. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he says, Not that I am speaking of being in need. Look at this. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, we love verse 13. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We can do all things through him who strengthens me. We use it in so many different ways. And you know what the context really is? Is that in any and every circumstance of life, Paul says that he is within me and strengthens me. Can athletes put it on their shoe? Sure. But I can put that on my shoe and I'm still not going to be able to dunk unless God does a miracle. It's, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying whenever it's only on the shoe, we totally miss the scope of it. It's not just about I can do these things and overcome this obstacle. It's that Christ in us strengthens us to do all things that he has put before us that we can be brought low, we can abound, we can have much, we can have less, and he is within us. The secret of being content is that Christ is in us and he will strengthen us. It's right there. We just we forget. Sometimes it's like whenever we're, we're looking around, and this is for glasses or contact where we're looking around and, and the world just kind of seems a little off and it seems like a little fuzzier. There's, uh, there's some obscure lines and we can't see so clearly. And then we put on our glasses because we forgot to put them on. And all of a sudden everything comes back into focus. We, we just get the wrong perspective. Look at Luke. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 12. I just want you to remember that our godliness is one thing, and it's a fantastic thing. We must strive for peace and holiness, without which no one will see him, is what Hebrews says. We've, we've got the holiness bound up in Christ, but we need the contentment for great gain. Like I think the gain is like right now. Like It's so that I can go enjoy today, so that I can have life abundantly. Luke 12, here's what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, therefore I, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who sits enthroned forever and ever and ever. He says, therefore I tell you, y'all do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Verse 24, look at this. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, 
Why are you anxious about the rest? It says, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, y'all, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you a little faith? He says, and do not seek. Do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. This is Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and is bringing us home. He says, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. He says, instead, seek his kingdom, seek godliness, and these things will be added to you. Like in all of those, do you hear the great care that God has for his people? And that's just a sampling. Like I could have gone on and on and on, but the benches get very uncomfortable. But you know that it's true. All throughout, God has always shown great care for his people. It's not that he never cared for them. It's that they didn't always like how he cared for them. He provides manna, and they get tired of it. He provides a place for them to be, but they have to go on a conquest. Like they were always a dissatisfied, distracted people. But there is a God who cares for us. And he tells us, quit worrying about in this. Quit worrying about what you shall eat or drink or wear. Instead, he says, your heavenly father already knows what you need. Listen to Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. Now listen to this. In Psalm 84, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. We walk uprightly, he will withhold no good thing. And yet you and I are probably sitting there going, I've got some good things that he's withholding from me. No, probably in giving them to you, they wouldn't be good things for you. They would become bad things for you. He, in his goodness and kindness, knows what he can give us and what he cannot give us because he wants us to be more like him. But no good thing will he withhold from you. Now, I do want you, I love this passage, Matthew 7, 9 through 11, and then we're going to keep moving. But look at Matthew chapter 7. This one's so applicable to us. We, we get this one, I think. In Matthew 7, chap, sorry, Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. It says, which of you, if the son asks for bread, this is Jesus speaking, which of you, if the son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you will give him a snake. So if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give, give good things to those who ask him? That one makes sense to me. I know what my kids need, and I'm going to provide for it, and I'm a finite father. I'm just here on this earth. I know what my kids need, and I'm going to meet that need in this world. If they need food, I'm going to feed them. If they need clothes, I'm going to clothe them. If they need sleep, whether they know it or not, I'm going to make them go to sleep. I'm going to give them what they need. I'm going to do it in a good way because I want to give a good gift. And Scripture attests like that we are children of wrath, like we are evil, like in our sinful nature. And he says, look, even if you are skewed by your evil nature, even if you're corrupt in your evil nature and you're striving after me, if you know how to do something good for your kids, how much better, how much greater the infinite good father who has all abundance, how much better will he provide for you? But as a dad, like that one resonates with me. I get that one. And so, so just gonna boil it down, like the practical things for me, like 
Where does my contentment rest? Like, how do I keep finding my contentment as I'm striving for it? Number one, I have a good father in heaven. I'm telling you, I, as a believer, this is where Ricky's contentment finally starts to settle in. I've got three of them. I have a good father in heaven, and he will not withhold any good thing from me if he knows that it's good for me. I have that father in heaven, and if I will do good for my kids, how much greater, and I'm finite in all of my limitations, how much greater the eternal God for me, I know that I have a good father. He is for me and not against me. He will never leave nor forsake me. Like, I know that. That gives me a lot of contentment. Also, I have a lot of contentment with this one. Number two, he is sovereign and all things are his. It means nothing. The way I see scripture, the way I live and operate in this world, that he is sovereign. If all things are his, then he can do whatever he wants and it's right. He doesn't need my advice. He doesn't need my, my affirmation of these decisions. But if he is sovereign, if he is king, and if all things are his, then I can rest because I'm his son and he will do all good things for those who, and he will not withhold anything from those who are walking uprightly. Everything in my life is because of God. That's what scripture shows me over and over again. I'm not at union because I earned a position at union. I'm not doing this because I somehow like earned favor to have this opportunity. I'm here. I'm there. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son because God is sovereign and I am not. And praise the Lord for that. But whenever we begin to operate under the idea of like sovereignty is not just a word, but sovereignty is who he is, then everything begins to take on a totally different scope for me. So everything that comes my way and everything that I possess, I'm just a steward of that because he gave it to me in this moment to manage and to be a steward of, including this breath that we're going to get to here in just a moment. Third thing for me, things that keep me content. Number three, if he did not withhold Jesus, he will not withhold all else that I need. He gave his very son. That's the greatest and the best. And everything else he can give me is less than that. And yet it's still good. But if he will not withhold Jesus, he will not hold, will not withhold anything else. One scholar put it this way. The Christian gospel provides an adequate basis for contentment. The gospel of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, being resurrected, interceding for us at the Father's right hand and the Spirit interceding for us from within. That provides adequate basis for contentment. If the gospel is true, so can our contentment be. And so it really comes down for me, because I have to break it down um, into terms for me. God is either telling the truth or he's lying. That's the black and white of it. He's either telling the truth or he's lying, and we know he's not lying. So all of that coupled with godliness plus contentment. Godliness that Christ has made us his own, that, that we have been sanctified and justified, we are forever his, and the contentment that we should be striving for, like those two things together will give us great gain. It doesn't say that that's essential for our salvation, by the way. Godliness is enough. Like we have Christ, that's enough. It's kind of like Paul's just running in saying, hey, like this just makes it all the better. Wasting your life right here. So all of that, I put it this way. That godliness coupled with an understanding that God is sovereign and therefore always for and with his people and that nothing can separate us from him and his goodness, that is my contentment. If he brings us more, then we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And if he brings us less, then we can do all things who strengthens us. 
He's either sovereign or he's not, and he gets to do with it whatever he wants. Which brings us to this, the great reminder, verse, verse 7. So everything progressively flows quicker from these. A great reminder. We brought, it says, brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of this world. What did I bring into the world? Nothing. What do I get to take from the world? Nothing. When I pass, what will I leave behind? Everything. And that's an incredibly sobering reminder. I leave everything here but my soul, and one day my body will be united with him fully and forever. That changes everything for me. It does speak in scripture of um, leaving a godly inheritance, sure. It also speaks of leaving an inheritance, a wise man leaving an inheritance, and then the foolish son wasting the inheritance. Like it just shows the fickleness of all the finances and things that we amass. Y'all, I want to enjoy all that he has given me in this moment. Don't you? Like that's kind of the, we didn't bring any of it in, we don't need to take any of it out. Like we just have like this moment right here, which scripturally speaking is more like this moment right here. And I just want to enjoy all that he has given me. What you and I have in each moment is what he's given us in this moment. Like, and whenever you go today, whatever moment you find yourself in, he's given that to you. Like I have this breath in this moment because God gave that breath to me. Have you ever just stopped and thought about how amazing it actually is that you're sitting right here in this moment? The psalmist says that I lie down and I sleep and I rise again or I wake again because you sustain me. Should God have said at any moment, Ricky, now, then there is no breath in my lungs and this moment is completely gone and I'm with him forever and ever. But until that moment, like we have this breath. Like we have the day that the Lord has given us. We have the moments that the Lord has given us. Like I'm not saying like carpe diem in a sinful way. Like that whole seize the day moment to go live licentiously. But I am, I'm saying we need to like seize the day that the Lord has given us. It is a carpe diem in a very Christian scope. Like why are we wasting our time worrying about everything we do not have? And we're just wasting the life he gave us. Like that's what we tend to do. Whenever we are discontent, we're wasting the moments. We're refusing the blessings. Most sobering fact that God brought me to as I'm doing all of this sermon prep, it's the most sobering truth of it all, is you and I didn't even have to exist. Like you realize that, right? You didn't have to exist. He could have done all of this without you. He could have done all of this without me. All of existence would continue on and never had to have Ricky in the equation and yet you woke up again with breath in your lungs. Like that's an amazing truth of the God of creation that he still woke you this morning. So we have the day the Lord has given us. We will rejoice. We will be glad in it. We didn't have to exist, and yet he said, and yet you will breathe today. And I will provide every need for you. Go live life. Oh, well, gosh, it would be, life would be better, though, if, if I don't oh know, just like go live life, like enjoy it, like stop and listen to the breeze and be in the moment with your family, like be present in the life that he's given you because you only have it for this long. Now, don't get me wrong. Everything else outside of this little parentheses where we get to live is fantastic and amazing and eternal. And it's going to be of riches that we can't even imagine. But we're wasting our time, too. And we're missing out on great contentment and joy if we forget the fact that he let us live in this parentheses and have this fullness of life. We just become discontent. Are you, listen to Ecclesiastes. Let me try this before I ask that question. Ecclesiastes 5.18. I like Ecclesiastes, by the way. It's very, I get it. He was living as one under the sun. 
And there was nothing new under the sun, and then Jesus Christ came. So one day we will preach Ecclesiastes, and, and we will look at that. But I think his scope is right. As we live under the sun, Ecclesiastes 5.18, it says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Everything, all that you have is a gift of God. The question is, are you content with what he has given you for your enjoyment? We take nothing else with us but our souls. Are his gifts good enough? Scope always keeps coming back. He's a good father. He's given us everything. Here's a great challenge. I call it a great challenge because I'm sitting there going, mm, I don't know. Okay, but that's just my heart. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Like that's all it takes. One theologian put it this way. What does man really need to live? Very little, really. Food and clothing. And clothing there is like the whole sheltering, like the clothing, like the, the, the basics of our life. It's that, speaking of that, we can make life happen, though, if we have those two most basic things, clothing and food. And Paul says we should be content. Life can happen. Life can be fully lived in that. And I'm just in there going, okay, um, hope so but that's a challenge for us and are we would we be satisfied with that paul's saying like a godliness with contentment would lead us to that result like it's everything that we absolutely need i wrote for my own note what if it's not what the lord has not given you that is keeping you awake at night or unrestful but just whatever it is you think you also need because he's given us all that we need we just keep adding to the list so the great challenge is if we have food and clothing, with these will we be content, but will we? Would you be content enough if that's all God gave you? Would I be content enough? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now look at verse 9. There's a great warning. Now he shifts into money. By the way, if you think about it, most people preach that whole scope in the view of money. Money just now comes in here. The matter is really discontentment. Money is just an example. Money in and of itself is not evil. Money is just a tool in this world. It's a powerful tool. It's something that we use to purchase things and, and to provide for the, the different aspects of our life. It's something that is worldwide. It's a powerful, powerful, very integrated tool. But it's only that. It's just a tool. And we get to use it and we get to, to, to live by it. Okay. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. You and I need to keep this in front of us because right now you might be in a season like where I don't desire more money. I'm not striving to be rich. Like I don't need more. And then three months later, you're like, man, if I just, if I just had more. And, and we begin to change. Right, we begin to like to find these other avenues to meet our needs. Those who desire to be rich, it says, this is those to put in the right perspective. They're trying to accumulate just more possession. Like it's not that they're just trying to move forward in life. God will give you opportunity and provide opportunity, and He will place you in opportunities where you continue to move through the ranks and you continue to ascend. And you just have to keep recognizing each time, Lord, thank you and thank you and thank you and thank you. Like I'm just here because you allow me to be here. 
the right perspective in that progression is okay. But it's whenever we begin to pursue it on our own, and therefore it's fueled by discontentment. So this is really speaking to those, they want to be rich, they're going to accumulate more possessions for themselves. Like it's that drive. That's who he's speaking of. But I just need you to hear me say this because I think it gets preached so wrongly so many times. Riches in and of themselves are not evil. Throughout Scripture, we see that God has blessed many of his people. He promises to bless us and give us riches one day. That's not evil. It's whenever the riches, whenever the good thing becomes a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. Right? So, it's talking about that. It says that if we desire to be rich with the wrong motives and the wrong opportunity, then watch this. We fall into temptation, into a snare, which is a trap. And it says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge. That word plunge is the part I actually want to point your attention to. The word plunge there in the original language is only used one other time in the New Testament, which always kind of gets my attention. It's used only one other time in the entire New Testament, and it happens in Luke 5, 7. In Luke 5, 7, Jesus sees Peter, and he's calling his disciples. He sees Peter and them out there on the boat. They've had an unproductive night fishing, and Jesus tells them, cast your nets into the deep. Peter says, we've already done that, and Jesus says, Put them into the deep. So they do. And whenever they're pulling in the nets, like the nets are weighing down so much that it says that the boat is beginning to sink. It's the same word for plunge there. Whenever it is saying that it's a harmful desire, that the pursuit of riches will plunge you, it's talking about a ship capsizing and sinking to the bottom. Like it's utter destruction. Does that make sense? The language is, that word is used only one other time, and it's referring to a boat going down and being sunk. And here he says that those who desire to be rich are destined for a shipwreck. And then it lays it out, ruin and destruction. Now where does that desire to be rich come from? Look at James 1, 14 through 15. It says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And the desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you bring it all together and it comes like this. That in 1 Timothy, it says that when we desire to be rich, we fall into temptation. And James says that the only reason we desire it is because it was already within us. And so we give in through that desire for temptation, and they both come together, and they say that it absolutely, absolutely leads to ruin and desire. Death of what? Death of our joy, death of our contentment, death of love, death of self, death of our soul. Why? Because we cannot pursue those things which God has forbidden and act like everything's fine. We can't live pursuing a sin that he has said that, that he does not delight in. And we cannot pursue it and act like everything is going to be fine and that we'll be content and have joy. Maybe our discontentment is because we're pursuing the wrong things. And we keep moving for the sake of time. So here's our great caution. A very often misquoted verse also, by the way. Verse 10. You and I need this caution. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered. Look at that, they've wandered. They just kind of drifted away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. For the love of money, look at that phrase. It does not say that money is the root of all evil. That's a misquote. Money is not the root of all evil. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Like that's a more accurate depiction of what's going on here. Money is just the example here. But it's the love of money. That's different, and quite honestly, it's very freeing for me. Because as the Lord blesses us, and as he 
gives more finances and more money to some people, then the fact that they have more is not evil in and of itself. It's that if they love the riches, it's the love of money that leads us astray. And Jesus speaks very clearly of it. But he is going to richly bestow on us all that we need and however he wants to. And we have to just be okay with that. To some, he is blessed with riches. And get this, some he is blessed with poverty. How can I say that he is blessed with less? Because he knows exactly what they need for their good. The money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money, and it's a root um, is a better understanding. But money is just a tool, I told you. It's just something that we operate by. The thing is, is that it ceases to be what we operate by and what we begin to operate for. And that subtle shift, that change in prepositions, changes how we, we think, how we worship, how we articulate where our peace and our joy and our contentment come from. Whenever money becomes the God thing in our life and it becomes a chief motivation of why we do all that we do and why we amass all that we have, whenever that love of money comes into play, then we will not be content. I'm going to keep going. It says that it is a root. That means it's just the start. Like it's just the start of so many kinds of evil that can manifest in so many different ways. And we might say, I don't love money. That's not me. By the way, God hasn't given us a lot of money, so it can't be a love of money in my Like we might say all those different things. I just want to like pastorally, lovingly say, like, I'm not in your head. I don't want to be in your head. Okay. Contentment is a matter of the heart. Love of money is a matter of the heart. I I don't know if you're discontent. I don't know if you love money to an unhealthy degree. I don't know those things. That's something that you and God know. What I would say is this, is a conviction, whether it be for the love of money, like as one category, or discontentment in general as another, like whatever that is, you know, and conviction is a good thing. Conviction is, because, is there because God hasn't given up on us. But what I also want you to get out of all this is like the comfort of all of this. There is conviction because we know that we are prone to discontentment. I am telling you, as a pastor, I am not immune to discontentment. In fact, one of the things that Chas will tell you, you know, that she walks so closely, I am very, very, very prone to discouragement. Like, I mean, things are great. And then the leaf falls outside. I'm like, oh, okay. I got to deal with this now. Like, I am prone to discouragement. You know what that means? I'm also very prone to discontentment. I don't have this all figured out, but I do know this. If God has convicted me and comforted me through Scripture, and if this is an issue, then I need to be sensitive to that. So if we know there's a problem and we do nothing about the problem, then it remains a problem. But if God lays a conviction there, then he will teach us contentment. I don't think contentment is one of those, got to figure it out all of a sudden. Like It's not just a light switch. It's like the slow, dim switch. You know, like that you're turning up on the wall. It's something that we learn more and more and more. I will say that I believe a good test, and they already be like, oh, he just went there, didn't he? A good test of whether we love money or not is in our tithe. It really, truly is. I actually had a lot of notes here, and so I'm just going to read my paragraph. There were, like, I'm not kidding, like two pages of notes you get five sentences. said, I actually had many notes to add here, but I deleted them because I realized that it would detract from the core meaning of this text. 
However, I will say this. Our obedience and tithing does reveal more about our view and love of money than we want it to. Our obedience in tithing does reveal more about our view and love of money than we wanted to. We've made the tithe a token expression in our culture and in our churches when it should reflect our gratitude and trust in his provision. It's, if you do the 10%, it's a lot of money. I don't care how much money you make, 10% is a huge chunk. It's all proportional. What if you can't do 10%? What if you're just like at 3%? Okay, what has God put on your heart for you to give back to him. If we actually want to go back to the Old Testament and look at like how much they actually gave to the temple, then it's probably more like I hear 20 to 23%. So 10% is like the discount, okay? But I'm just saying we made the tie something we drop in because at least we gave something. What Chas and I have found is like the tithe is non-negotiable in our house. Whenever we set up a budget, the tithe doesn't even get factored in to all these other things. The tithe comes off immediately and what we have found in our lives is that God has never left us in need. He has always provided. I would just encourage you to consider that. Why is it there? Why did God lead me to put that there? I don't know. Is it so that Crosslock can start making some money? No. <laughs> this, is, this is just where we are. I'm saying, though, that whenever we start talking about love of money, one of the quickest places that people will put to give is the tithe to the church. It becomes negotiable whenever it's something that we are to do in obedience. Last verse, and then we're going to conclude. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Actually, turn there for this one, please. Hebrews 13, verses 5 through 6. And this is kind of that love of money conclusion. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it's a good one. It's a good one. You just got to go read it. It's one of my favorite books until I read another book, and then it becomes <laughs> a favorite. But Hebrews 13... Verses 5 through 6, just some real good life application, says this. Believers, this is who he's writing to, keep your life free from the love of money. And look at this. And be content with what you have. For he has said, like the word for means because. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. I'm going to do that verse one more time to kind of start pulling it all together. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear for what can man do to me. Contentment's also a choice. It's something we have to respond to. All right. I want to return to the truth of these first verses. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, we preach it all the time. We sing of it. We rejoice in it. We are forever His. But with contentment, there is great gain. What, what I feel we should return to is simply this. Our pursuit of Christ is our godliness. That's a core component. Our, our contentment is our peaceful satisfaction in what God has given us. That's the other core component. In these two, there is great gains. We are not good at the contentment. We're good at the Christ-sitterness. And in all of that, whenever we fall into discontentment, we begin to get distracted. We just have to repent of that. The greatest remedy I have found to my discontentment is gratitude. To simply stop and say thank you for whatever it is that he's given us. Be it the, the finances, the, the kids, 
the health, the job, whatever it is, to stop and recognize that really all the good that he has given me and just simply say thank you. And it begins to turn that discontentment and it begins to shift it. And I will also say this, that the content person will be filled with the fruit of the spirit. It will be evident. Whenever you find a content person, you will find someone who is filled with joy and kindness and humility and goodness and patience and endurance. Like that's all going to be there. But whenever discontentment comes in and begins to kind of cloud those things, contentment, y'all, aligns all of our affections. Because then we begin to live the life that he died for us to live. So how's your godliness? How's your contentment? And those two things there is great game. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Teach me to be content and remind me over and over again of the good that you've given. And Lord, really, truly, help me to be content with all that I have so that I can live in the goodness of what you've provided. Godliness, which you've provided with contentment, which I should seek, is great gain. Help us to honor you with how we deal with these scriptures. And Lord, thank you for those who have modeled contentment for me and around me and around others so that we can see what this life really begins to look like. But you are God, and you, God, are our good Father, and you love us richly and deeply. Amen.